Welcome to the second season of the Think Wilder podcast. I hope you enjoyed all the episodes from season one. Season two will be a lot more larger and hopefully more entertaining for you all. So we have a wide range of speakers ranging from Anish Andheria, Kaushal Sharma, Kartik Shankar, and Ian Redman. Before we start the season, I would like to make an announcement. So there are over two hundred million people who live in and around. indus protected areas they rely on these ecosystems for natural resources as a form of sustenance we at think wildlife foundation have partnered with various organizations around india to help provide a sustainable alternative source of livelihood you can help these projects by buying products made from these alternative livelihood projects from the links provided in the description below 90% of the revenue is being donated directly to the local communities not only conserving wildlife but also helping some of the most poor people in india financially in the first episode of season 2 i speak to azadeen t downers he is currently the president and ceo of the international fund for animal welfare more popularly known as ifo we speak about the illegal wildlife trade and its impact on conservation and how the covid-19 pandemic has changed the illegal wildlife globally welcome to the think wildlife podcast it is a pleasure to have you on here thank you very much so today i want to talk to you about the illegal wildlife trade so what has been the ecological impact of the illegal wildlife trade you know the thing about uh wildlife trade the first thing i want to say is um we're talking about illegal trade so it's a crime right and so anytime there's a there, there's a crime there's a crime syndicate involved and the goal is is really about money is how to make as much money as possible and so what's missing um in in that equation from a from a criminal point of view is the impact that it does have on the environment and when you think about taking animals taking wildlife out of the environment there's no consideration about the impact that it has or that there's even a connection uh or an importance to having wildlife in nature and so there's many many things that happen um both for the wildlife both for the habitat destruction of uh, the habitat um but also the the impact that it has on people's lives that live with wildlife and how they view nature and so it's a, it's a very um negative way of looking at what is wildlife uh and the the importance that it does have to uh the, the overall environment so why should a person care about wildlife crime one of the reasons why they should care is because wildlife crime uh has to do with criminal networks right and so if you only look at a uh, wildlife crime as what animals are being traded or what species is being affected you're not thinking about the criminal network and so one of the one of the things that we discovered at IFA was focusing on a particular species uh is incorrect criminals focus on making money right and so 
what we focus on is disrupting the network, is to disrupt the criminal network. So when people think about wildlife crime, they don't think about crime in general, uh, whether there's drugs or arms or illegal cigarettes or um, charcoal. So criminal networks are involved in all sorts of crime, including wildlife crime. So wildlife crime doesn't sit uh, alone. Uh, crime has a negative effect on people's lives in many ways that they may not understand. So could you elaborate on how exactly does it impact people's lives? Well, you know, that, that question is a really good one. Um, are, they, are they the poorest people in the world? A very sensitive topic. Um, if, you look at, if you look at criminal networks, uh, you look at a, a chain of people, right? So uh, who are the people who are poaching? Who are the people who uh, don't really make that much money from wildlife crime? They are the poorest people. They are the poorest people. Uh, but I think it's incorrect to say that everyone involved in wildlife crime are the poorest people in the world. The middle people uh, and the criminal networks, they're making a lot of money on the other side of, of the chain. It depends on what the product is. If you're talking about uh, you know, bushmeat, for example, uh, you're talking about people who are trying to survive. Uh, if you're talking about ivory, uh, the criminal networks that transport the ivory and ultimately the consumers, they're not the poorest people in the world. They're some of the wealthiest people in, in their countries. Um, so who, who is most affected? It's, it is the poorest people. It is the poorest people. And this is why um, just uh, stopping people from trading um, or poaching uh, or arresting the poorest people from communities is, is not really going to solve the problem. And unfortunately, it's often uh, the poorest people and the people who are struggling the most are the ones who suffer from some of the um, efforts to disrupt uh, criminal activity. Those are the people who are arrested. Those are the people who get long prison sentences. Uh, whilst the people who are making millions on the other end of the spectrum uh, are often not arrested. So obviously in 2020, the pandemic hit the world and everything changed after COVID. How has the legal wildlife trade changed after COVID? You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things um, connected to wildlife trade, of course, is the ability to transport uh, the product from one place to another. So that that definitely was disrupted um, during the pandemic. Uh, and I would say that that was a that was a positive side of the pandemic. The other um, the other thing that we saw in the pandemic was that there was very little, if any tourism in some parts of the world. And a lot of the money that goes into, uh, securing and protecting national parks, and that includes paying the rangers, that revenue comes from tourism. So with no tourism, there was no money to pay the rangers. Now, the other interesting thing that we found was the lack of tourism, in many instances, was good news for wildlife because they had fewer people around. 
the downside was that with fewer people uh, around watching wildlife, it gave an opportunity for uh, poaching to increase in some areas. So it depends again on what the what the species was. Um, so I would say that it was it was mixed. It was mixed uh, overall. Um, the pandemic prevented uh, easy movement from one country to another because a lot of flights were canceled and a lot of people were not able to travel uh, at all. Uh, and so if you can't if you can't bring a product to the market, you can't make any money. So I would I would say that there was a uh, for us you know a positive effect in disrupting wildlife trade. In recent years, there's been a lot of wildlife trade occurring over the internet. So on what platforms does most of this illegal wildlife trade occur and what role does social media play? Social media plays a very large role. Um, you know, I think some people think, well, it's a criminal activity, so it must be on the dark web. But that's that's actually not true. Uh, it's very easy, in fact, to find products, uh, wildlife products on social media, on platforms. We, we worked a lot with companies like eBay and Alibaba uh, that, that were posting uh, wildlife products for sale. I, I think one of, the, one of the problems though is you have to, you have to work with the tech companies to, to help us uh, disrupt the wildlife, illegal wildlife trade. But the problem, the problem really is with educating people who may not realize that what they're buying uh, or what they're supporting through social media likes or sharing um, is, is actually something that's illegal. Uh, and it's often the case with people will see something um, that they want to buy on online. Uh, they don't know that it's illegal. And that's why you wind up with the shocking, the shocking sale of tigers and lions and, and other animals online. So social media plays a huge part, but people using it um, to, to purchase, not knowing that it's illegal are, are really the problem. So, you know, it's important, the tech is important, but people's uh, behavior is more important, I would say. How has the how have the big tech firms responded to the growing use of their platforms and their illegal wildlife trade? You know, we've had very good luck. You know, we have um, a coalition with Traffic and WWF, and working with platforms as I mentioned with like Alibaba and and eBay. Um, we started out in 2018. We had 21 companies who were working with us. Uh, we're now up to 47 companies. Uh, partners, 11 billion user accounts online, right? So it's massive. The, the ability to buy something online is, is massive. Um, some of those companies have removed up to 11 million listings. 11 million times people would see um, something that they could buy online and whether they knew it was illegal or not. So uh, I, I would say that the coalition has been, been highly effective, uh, but again, it gets to that fundamental point of are people educated about what they should or should not do when, when they see uh, wildlife 
uh, live and products online. And what are some other ways to tackle the illegal wildlife trade online? Well, I would say that you know the most important thing is is for people to be educated. Um, I would say that you know we have found we have found through various surveys that we do um, that many people who are buying products uh, illegal products online uh, or otherwise don't realize that it's illegal. Uh, and so it begins with the education of the consumer. So what we did, you know, was a three-part strategy of disrupting illegal trade uh, in the source countries, which you know, we focus a lot in Africa, transit countries, and that's why we opened our offices in uh, the Middle East, uh, and then in Asia uh, to work with Chinese consumers to convince them that what they were doing was having a really negative effect on the overall population of wildlife and just educating them about where some of the products come. It would, the, the interesting point in China about ivory, uh, the early surveys that we did showed that people did not know that an elephant had to be killed for the ivory. They all thought that the ivory came from either natural uh, mortality or that the tooth which you know, is the tusk in Chinese language, that the tusk simply falls out. And once they learned that, the percentage of people who said that they would buy ivory online dropped uh, dramatically. So again, it gets back to consumer behavior and consumer awareness. Um, and to spread the word on social media that when you see something that you think might be cute, um, it's actually illegal and, and they could speak out. And what have been some challenges you guys have faced in trying to reduce the demand for wildlife, particularly with something as cultural as traditional Chinese medicine? Yeah, you know, Chinese medicine is, is interesting. Um, we have been working on that for years and we have a big office in China and uh, our staff is Chinese. And so they're very well aware of, of what traditional medicine is. We also worked in places around the world that has large Chinese uh, population uh, that uses traditional medicine. And what we found is that in almost all cases where a wildlife product is being used, there's a herbal alternative uh, that the that traditional medicine practitioners actually can use. And so there are alternatives. And so part of the messages that we put out there is that yes, uh, traditional medicine has a place. Um, millions of people have used it over the years, but there are herbal alternatives uh, that are just as effective in most cases than wildlife products. So, you know, again, messaging to get people to switch from a wildlife product to a herbal medicine. Now, moving on more towards law enforcement, what has been preventing governments around the world to efficiently enforce the law when it comes to the wildlife trade? Well, one is, again, educating people that the wildlife trade in illegal products is as large as it is. It starts with uh, customs officials where we've worked with um, officials who are confiscating uh, products. And what they tell us is that oftentimes they simply don't have time 
to identify whether a product is legal or illegal. And so they need easy ways. And some of that is through technology. Some of it is through smartphones. Some of it is uh, through uh, pocket uh, guides to what a product is, whether its product is legal or illegal. Uh, so some of the education starts there. But at, uh, at the other end of you know, the chain is, will people go to jail if they are arrested? And in many cases, uh, the laws are just not in place because wildlife crime is not considered as important as other crimes like drugs or human trafficking or arms. And the point that we make there is it's the same networks. It's the same networks. And so uh, working with uh, the judicial systems to put policies in place, to put laws in place. But then also what we found is that once those laws are in place, uh, the judges, the judicial system needs to be educated about the severity of wildlife crime. So it starts with it starts with awareness of uh, law enforcement uh, from the very beginning. And oftentimes you will hear, um, we have more important things to do. That's one of the greatest challenges. We have more important things to do. Wildlife is just not that important when it compares to drugs or, or arms. And our response to that is it's the same criminal networks. So disrupting a criminal network uh, is is good practice. It's good policy uh, to stop all sorts of crimes. Um, and th then on the other end, one of the challenges is something that you brought up earlier is that uh, uh, judges are often very reluctant to send a poor person um, to jail for something that they consider not that important, wildlife. And so discussions at the judicial level are really important, but those, those are probably the biggest challenges. One is just awareness uh, and the connection to criminal networks, uh, but two, um, the, the collection of evidence, the presentation of the evidence in a court of law that has the laws, they first have to have the laws on wildlife crime, uh, and then they have to be enforced. So those are the biggest challenges. Um. Could you elaborate a bit about some of uh, IFAR's initiatives to tackle the wildlife crime? Sure. So, you know, as we said, uh, we started out with a three-pronged uh, three approach, um, working in the source countries. So for the sake of discussion, the countries in Africa, uh, working in Kenya, Zambia, Zimbabwe, um, Malawi, where we uh, train and supply rangers um, to protect the wildlife in those protected areas. Sometimes, sometimes those rangers are in national parks and they have the support of the government, but oftentimes a lot of the wildlife is spending enormous amount of time outside of those protected areas. So we invest in the training and equipping uh, rangers who, who live with the community and they live with people living with wildlife. And, and that's, where it, that's where it starts. The other thing about working with uh, communities and people who are live with wildlife is that they have a very good sense of 
who belongs in the area and who does not belong in the area. And one of the most important things that we try to do uh, is to prevent poaching or to prevent the crime from happening in the first place and anticipating where and when it will happen. Um, as opposed to the confiscation of illegal wildlife products. And the point that I make there is uh, at IFO, our focus is to keep elephants alive. It's not to confiscate ivory. You have to do that, but the elephant is already dead. And so our approach is to anticipate where uh, illegal uh, killing of, of an animal takes place and to prevent it before it happens. And the way that we do that is to understand uh, what's happening in the community, working closely with the community, uh, creating networks of information that, that help people stay safe and the animals that they're living with. Um, you know, again, with crime networks, criminal networks, people want to be safe too. They don't want to live with criminals in, in their neighborhoods, in their community, right? And so we focus a lot on making sure that communities understand what it is that we're doing. Um, helping them is helping us. And do you think enough is being done uh, at an international scale to tackle the wildlife crime? I think it's getting a lot more attention. Um, I, I participate in security conferences and I would say I would say that people are not aware of the connection uh, from wildlife to criminal networks. Again, that, that issue of wildlife crime is somehow separate and apart from other types of crime. So is, is more needed? Yes, more is needed. I think that there is a lot of attention being given um, to the products. And th this is where I think there needs to be a shift. Um, disrupting the criminal network at the end of the chain and disrupting criminal networks is getting more attention, um, but it doesn't help prevent the crime from taking place in the first place. So I, I, I would say that that's where we need to focus as well. And how can we as an individual help contribute to tackling the wildlife crime? Well, the first thing is to think about your own behavior. You know, what are, what are you doing on social media um, that you may inadvertently support wildlife crime? You see something where uh, people are handling wild animals uh, in a way that they shouldn't and have to wonder, is this, is this animal for sale? Anytime, anytime you see a wildlife uh, you know, a wild animal that you're surprised to see being sold, there's a good chance that it's illegal. And I would say the first thing that you can do is to be very um, skeptical of whether or not you should buy that or that you shouldn't say something uh, that, that helps people understand that taking animals out of the wild, uh, whether it's legal or illegal, it's not a good thing. It's 
not a good thing. Um, so clearly, don't buy, don't buy products, don't buy products. Um, and then, you know, depending on where you live, um, you know, make your voice heard. You can reach out to the people that you've helped elect uh, to let them know that you're very concerned about crime. And part of that concern is wildlife crime. And that helps people become aware of, of things that they may not be aware of. So those are two things that, that you can immediately do. The other thing, obviously, you know, for the work that we do, um, we reach out to people around the world at IFAW, and um, you can learn more about what we do at ifaw.org, uh, our website. And, and if you can support the rangers um, through you know, donations and or uh, messages to, to let them know that you support them, um, that, that's always helpful because they're on the front line. Uh, and they're not always the people who uh, are trained as law enforcement uh, officers. And so when I say that they put their life on the line, they're often the people who are killed first by criminal networks. And what is your long-term vision for IFA? The long-term vision um, is really to focus on saving wildlife, saving biodiversity, uh, which for us leads to saving the planet, saving ourselves. And if there's one message that I can get across is don't see yourself separate and apart from biodiversity and nature of the planet. Saving wildlife is saving ourselves. My final question is, what has been your greatest learning in your career as a wildlife conservationist? I would say, that's a great question. I would say um, the thing that I have learned is uh, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of learning that's out there and that you have to be patient and you cannot give up hope. The news is so negative all the time that it can be depressing for people. And I think that they give up. Uh, and, and there's a lot of messages in the media that says, you know, we've passed the tipping point. Uh, but I don't accept that. And, and that's what I've learned is that if you want to change the world, you have to believe that you can. That is a great statement to end the podcast. Thank you so much for your time for this interview. It was nice speaking to you. Very good. Thank you very much.